Welcome to Harper Audio Presents. Today's episode is a double-barrel account of youthful indiscretion. We'll hear first from author David Crabb about his memoir, Bad Kid, and also from Cleary Walters regarding her book, Out of Orange. Enjoy! David Crabb is a performer, writer, teacher, and storyteller in New York City. He's a Moth Story Slam host and a three-time Moth Slam winner. His solo show, Bad Kid, was met with critical acclaim and made a New York Times critic's pick. David joins me today to talk about his new book, Bad Kid, based on his solo stage show and publishing by Harper Perennial in May. Welcome, David. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I want to start by reading a couple of of descriptions of the book. Um, Kirkus Reviews called it an upbeat, endearing, and achingly funny, a vivid and dramatic slice of adolescence. I've heard it described as a funny and moving examination of rebellion, sexuality, and friendship, and David Crabb reflects on what it means to grow up different and alone, just like everyone else. But my favorite, and I don't know who wrote this, is that Bad Kid is the story of a goth boy who dreamed of being anywhere but the middle of Texas in 1991, preferably somewhere in London wearing fishnet gloves and a cape while standing alone in the rain. Because I think that perfectly captures it. Yeah. So thanks so much for writing it. Tell, just tell us, tell us a little bit about the book and, and what sort of what period in your life it describes and some of the things that were going on. Yeah, as you just said, I grew up in, in Texas, in San Antonio specifically. And uh, I was a bit of a wallflower as a kid. I was fun. I had friends. But as puberty hit, I started to realize there was something up. There was something amiss. Um, and what I didn't realize at first was that I was I was gay, and um, it scared the hell out of me to the point that I sort of just became even more of a wallflower. I just wore a lot of khakis and buttoned down. I just kind of wanted to disappear. I say in the book, I look if you look in middle school photos of me, I look like a little chubby lesbian that works at Blockbuster Video. Like it's just sort of my ensemble. Um, and something happened uh, when I was about fifteen. I met this uh, this kid, um, Greg, who was basically, he became like a, a confidant for me. And we sort of discovered this other world together, this world of, you know, wearing dog collars and smoking closed Things cigarettes. Things changed. Things yep. changed. Listening to moody music, sneaking into teen clubs and um, and, and, and drugs. And uh, that, was, that was a dangerous gateway for me. But the book, I think, is, is mainly about how thankful I am for that. It really provided me a way out because I was, I, was, I was getting, I was falling into a pretty miserable place when I was about 13, 14. And I kept it all very internalized. And the book is sort of about finding this other group of uh, equally emotionally agitated kids. Now, you joke, you joke in your author's note that you wrote the book purely for money, that that's really the only reason why you did it. And I know that's a joke. First of all, best author's note I've ever read. Oh, I've, thanks. You had me laughing from page one, which was fantastic. But why why did you choose to go beyond the solo show and and the moth readings that were hugely successful and sort of translate it into this medium, which is you know the print medium? Why was that important to you? Well, I'm I'm, I'm really lucky in that. Um, well, there's a thing that happens when you produce a solo show in New York and it gets a New York Times Critics Pick. You know, I was just so happy to have such a favorable critical response, but. Uh, book agents, they just contact you blindly. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, my Facebook inbox had had different agents, and uh, it was it was really fascinating. It was something I didn't expect. And 
I never thought of myself as a writer per se, even though I sort of took for granted, I think, how much writing went into preparing all these stories for the Moss stage and for the solo show. Um, and there was one um, agent who had actually seen the show before it got the critics pick, Alex yeah. Glass, and he's really loved it from the start. Um, he came again and again, and um, he just was, he was my champion. He's sort of my saving grace. He's a wonderful guy, and he really took the time and energy to First of all, see if writing the show for the page was something um, that would be interesting and beneficial. And then he really helped me foster that. And um, and I guess he sort of made me realize that I had been a writer the whole time. Yeah. I had just been coming at it from a different way. I had been writing with the expectation of speaking those words. So this was a really amazing experience because in a way I think I sort of discovered the extent to which I was always, always a writer. Oh, interesting, yeah. And how to use that in reverse. Now, how do I take all these wonderful stories I've been speaking out loud and put them on the page so that they function in a way that without me there doing the funny voice, you can feel them. Yes, and you know? it's so successful because I, I heard your voice, mm -hmm. but it was such strong, strong writing. And I, I also think you said something in your author's note where the reason why you wanted this to be um, about your life, but you also wanted it to be entertaining and universal enough for anyone anywhere to um, make them feel larger than them you know something mm -hmm. you wanted to communicate something larger than themselves for anyone of any yeah. sort of demographic the minute I picked this up and from the minute that you started writing a you had me laughing it was I, I thought it was such a funny book but I was also struck by your generosity sort of to yourself and to all of your friends and your parents it's I know how it is when you, you sort of look back at a younger self and you think that's a completely different person. Mm -hmm. And you were so you were so generous to that person and all of those people that were with you. I thought that was really touching. Oh, thanks. I you know, I think that working, you know, I started telling stories at the Moth and other places about five, six years ago. And I started teaching storytelling in lots of contexts. Um with the moth, with high school kids, uh, through Wounded Warriors Foundation, yeah. working with vets oh, and caregivers. Wow, yeah. And it's it's taught me, you know. There, I think there's no one that's like beyond redemption. I don't think that that I, there's this idea in culture that people do these things that they they will never grow past in right, someone's mind. Right, that they mind. get locked in that, yeah. and that just like breaks my heart. And and it's become a harder thing to ignore as I work with people who did things in the military that they, they still uh, can't process. Um, right. Uh, you know, you know, kids that grow up in New York, some of them have rough lives. They tell me stories about things they witnessed in you know, growing up in like difficult families, and I, the idea that that's the end of your story because some something makes you so fragile or broken that you mm -hmm. don't evolve past it. And that was really important to me. Is that you know a lot of the people in Bad Kid, I mean, I had some friends. I mean, we we, we were messes. We did a lot of drugs. We engaged yeah. in some really bad behavior, and I'm so lucky to still know a lot of them. And the idea that these people now like are on, you know, they run PTAs and they, you know, they have kids and they teach in like, you know, uh, Catholic schools. Like the, the idea that their past behavior sort of kept them from becoming those people is absurd to me. And I think the extent to which they are those people because of these things that maybe on paper seem completely yes. mortifying or degrading, I think, uh, you know, a lot of those experiences make you who you are. And that's always been really important to me about writing the book. And do you think that that sort of locking people in is mm -hmm. increasing yeah, well, with Twitter, and I mean, you're guilty forever now, right? Yeah. Like, it's talk about a permanent record, you know? The fact that, like, if I, the age I am in this book, 15 to 17, or the years it mainly covers up to 18, really, if I had had Facebook and Instagram right? and been posting about myself and that, I don't, I don't know where I'd be, and I wonder, I wonder the extent to which 
certain moments I'd posted pictures of myself, thoughts right. I had in that time. Right. I feel like I would have suffered such a, a a backlash from either my friends or my family or society that I wonder the extent to which it would have colored the person oh, I yeah. thought I could become. There are several times in the book where you talk about, you know, sort of retreating to your to your journal, whether it was in the fields or wherever. But I also I, I related so much to your mother in this book. And there's, this, there's a part where she comes in and she says, so, you know, I was straightening your underwear drawer. Okay, well, yeah, I just took your journal out and I read it. Yeah. She, she, you, you sprinkle throughout the book comments of um, unconditional love that she has for you, and she, she's trying to reassure you. Now, she's, she, and she's not, you know, she's not a dish rag. She, she stands up and she, she's tough when she needs to be, but there are cases where she tells you, you know, I'm just going to tell two of, them, <laughs> two of my favorites. Oh, dear. The first one was when she... She said, you know, when she was trying to understand what was starting to happen to you, and she said, now, do you have a split personality? Because I would love you even more. There would just be more of you to love. Yes. You know, she, she tried to uh, assure you. And then later on in the book, when you had come out and she had accepted you of that, she also said, um, I would love you even if you were handicapped. And we would build the ramp and everything, you know, if you know, yeah. it was if your boyfriend, if, boyfriend, if, if yeah. you got a boyfriend. She was encouraging you to go out and get a boyfriend. And if you had a boyfriend and he was handicapped, you know, we would build the ramp. And I just <laughs> I just thought she was she was so marvelous. And equally, you know, sort of your father who didn't, you know, who couldn't come to it as quickly as she, who, who eventually did come to being enormously supportive. And I just felt like that was so real and so true to so, so many parents. Yeah. And I need to ask, so, so what, are your mo- what are your mother and father doing now? Like, where are they and how are they doing? So my mom and my dad and my stepfather, um, who's also in the book, yeah. um, they live about 10 minutes from each other um, in a suburb outside, outside of San Antonio. Um, you know, my mother is as kooky and, and funny as ever. Um, you, you know, I, they're both, I feel lucky because they're, they're both really complex people. And I think that... They don't seem like that. Like, my mother worked in, you know, youth services in a church uh, when I was young. She worked in the mall at a maternity store, and she volunteered and did some rape crisis help. But, like, she had a bookshelf full of serial killer books. <laughs> she was fascinated by Ted Bundy. Uh, she had a thing of paintings of John Wayne Gacy, the clown killer. She really loved this whole amateur forensics approach to things. And if you met her, she's this cheery little redhead from Newfoundland who, like, giggles, makes a wonderful uh, split pea soup with a ham hock in it, but then she will be the first person to talk to you about, he dismembered those people and ate them. I mean, and she's so And at one point, she says it. something when she's getting a little frustrated with one of your friends. She says, you know, I like, I like complex people, but, you know, yeah, she's not... I had <laughs> Limits. Yeah. That's at the end of a yeah. rope, you know. Yeah, and and my dad's like that too. My dad, you know, he has a southern accent. You know, wears trucker hats and Wrangler jeans, and but you know, and and he's a bit, you know, he's he's a moodier person. He stays a bit more to himself, but he's deeply intellectual. Like he mm. he always loved reading uh, Carl right. Sagan and Stephen Hawking, and you know, I think having these two people in my in my life that I think on first meeting you, you think you glean enough about who they are to know them. And then you get to know them more. I mean, even my friends, you know, sometimes I think, is it just me because I know them that well? But all my friends, I mean, either of my parents are like, oh, I, I thought this and and no, you know. So I, I, I feel lucky. I feel blessed. Yeah, that's, a, that's yeah. a huge advantage. Yeah, they're, they're back kooks. To, yeah, going back to what you said earlier about, you know, young people who, who don't have those signposts, you know, mm. right right in front of them. I, I, I think that's much more challenging. And I'm really interested to hear you talk about sort of how you, you're using the act of telling your story as a bit of the way to change 
your story. And mm-hmm. it sounds like that's a lot of what you're doing. Do, do you have kids yourself? or is, no. So you work with youth. And yeah. what are you... Are, are youth receptive to this idea? It sounds like something that they would get sort of intuitively. You know, well, it's, it's interesting. T- talking about the book in terms of, you know, I mean, I love working with kids. And, and through the program I work with them in the Moth, um, you know, it's they, they elect to do it, right? Like, okay. you know, I mean, I there are people that work in the Moth and other places. And, I mean, they go into places where they're not welcome. And the kids have walls because they're like, I would rather be anywhere but listening to you talk to me about my personal narrative right now. Yeah. And I'm lucky because I get to work with these kids that, like, sign up and they really want okay. to be there. You know, it's interesting because, you know, my mother loves describing the book this way. I was just home in Texas, and I and I, I went to sleep early because her and her wild church friends who were, like, all 60-plus were keeping me up all night. I was, like, the old man oh with the broom. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I couldn't sleep, and I heard my mother telling everyone about the book because she got a, a galley and she was reading. She's like, well, this is the interesting. And I'm going to tell you, I'll be honest, Susan, it is hardcore. There is drug use and sex stuff. And you really have to, you have to white knuckle through it. But if you get into the sweet part, you really, it's like, it's like, the, it's like the show. It's very intense. It hits you in the face. And then if you get into the later part, there's really something, you know, and and I love that she says this about the book because I think, to an extent, it's true. It's a bit Absolutely of like a. Absolutely true. It's some very, almost. It's some. It, it it's very funny in a very aggressive and very um, graphic way, and then it gives way to something I think more thoughtful uh, and contemplative. And the thing about this narrative with kids, the kids I work with, sixteen, seventeen. I wonder, but I think I think the the right kid could read Bad Kid at sixteen or seventeen and really get something from it. But I, you know, I'm very I'm honest in a way for the adult reader that I don't know if I would have been, especially in that first half of the book, if a teenager was going to read I, it. I think that's a very interesting. Do you know point. what I mean? I, do, I, yeah. to, I totally know what you mean because I have a sixteen year old and a nineteen year old, mm-hmm. and I thought about oh, I know she, the sixteen year old, would love it. But I did. I thought oh, you know what? This actually isn't written to her. It's mm-hmm. written more to me and 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 younger people because I'm too old. But you know, I, I think that's a very good point, and I. I think that what you're helping us understand is that full that full transition because we we do get to the end where you kind of understand you can have fun and you can keep your identity without those extremes. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes books they the stories end before they get to that point. Yeah. Because they kind of feel oh maybe that's not as sec you know that ending is not as sexy and it it doesn't sort of keep me as, as quote-unquote interesting. Right. But I love that you did that, that you you showed us, oh, yeah, you really did have to move to the other town, suffer through some things there, and then kind of just get in with the crowd at that high school yeah. and figure that out. Well, there's the thing, you know, when we were, when I was putting the book together, and even when I was building the show, you know, I never, ever wanted to make um, a cautionary tale about drug use. That, I'm just not interested in that. Um, I do feel like that message is implicit in the book. Yeah, I agree. But as opposed to, you know, I, I think I, w- I would hate for someone young, maybe without a certain mental maturity, to only read the first half of the exactly. book and get like doing acid in a cemetery right. when you snuck out is an awesome thing. Right. Because as adults, you and I right. know that, yeah, there's a lot of misbehavior we probably engaged in, depending on, you know, what your I background did. is. I did. And it was me. fun. And we don't regret it. But 
is that the way that you want to posit that message right. to someone that might be impressionable at 15 or 16? And that's the only thing. And, and kids don't have a lot. I mean, I think if I could, I think if every 15 or 16-year-old that was going to read, read this book would finish it, they would get there. But we live in the Vine video generation. I think a kid might right. read two chapters and be like, Drugs are awesome. I'm going to party. Yeah, I'm going. And, yeah. yeah, I'm putting this down. I'm heading out. And for me, so much of it is that whole arc, like getting I to the other end. Completely agree. Yeah. And, and that was what was so impressive about it. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> I want to talk to you as a, as a, a book author, mm. and I, I often ask authors are about the publishing process. Mm. So you, the book's about to pub, and, and you're working with a, a large traditional house. Mm. You know, what has your experience been, and certainly what has it been sort of compared to what you did in terms of standing up a, a solo show? Well, it's very different. You know, yeah. I'm, um, you know, it's funny putting a, a, a theater show together. I mean, whether you're in New York, you're already in a great position, right? Because the idea is that, you know, I'm, I'm, bu I, I'm building this show in this off, off Broadway, you know, 99 seat theater. I'm going to run this show 15 to 20 times. The dream is that the New York times comes, right? Because, only a few thousand, let's say you sell yeah. out that run, right. maybe a few thousand, maybe people see the show. A critic's pick of the New York Times offers you this, this heightened opportunity where suddenly this is a net national situation. Yep. And you can send this review to a theater in Tuscaloosa or you know, wherever you want to go, in Austin, Texas, in Washington, D.C., and you can, you can bring the show there. So the show is a thing that needs to go to a place to touch people. Right. The book is really interesting because... You know, uh, you know, working with Harper's been so amazing and so great, and the idea now that, like, X amount, you know, thousands and thousands of these books, it's like that show is in a little message, this beautiful little 350-page message, and it's being sent all over the country. And that's a really different sort of expectation for me. Um, there's something that makes me a little breathless and my heart skip a beat about the fact that, like, I wish there was a little pocket in me that came with the book that could like sit on the desk and do the funny voice of my friend and my mom and make sure you understand this part, right? Um, so that's, you know, I mean, this is my first time at the rodeo as sure. a writer. Like yeah. I said, I've been writing. I've been writing short stories for a long time. I've been writing monologues. I've been writing stories. But in terms of um, a whole book that's just going to go out there into the world without me, it's, it's, it's thrilling and daunting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you have plans to continue writing for print? Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, it, I... Do you I, think it's going to be fiction or, or more um, sort of nonfiction, memoir type stuff? I have a few I have a few ideas. I have a couple fiction ideas. One I've already started working on, and then um, I have two memoir ideas. And one, I'm, one I've already presented as a solo show in a workshop. I'm presenting it again in Austin when I do uh, book tour stuff there next month. Um, and uh, conceptually, you know, I'm... Honestly, as a writer, I'm very excited to get out of the teen years. Yeah. Um, it's been a beautiful place to revisit. And quite honestly, there are people in the book you read about that I am now friends with again because... And, and I want to know to... everything about them. So is your, is and, your next yeah. book going to tell us about what, what happens to all of you? N no, <laughs> probably not. Maybe. You know, it's, it's interesting because in this, in this business, you know, if the book's a big hit, all of a sudden there will be interest in, like, well, what would the sequel be? And I'm like, my God, I'm, my college years, not much happened. I experimented a lot with ecstasy. I developed an anxiety disorder. Uh -huh. I realized that, I, oh, wait, maybe there's a, you know, and, and it's funny, uh, you know, as a storyteller, too, you start to talk about, oh, that's not a story because just X, Y, oh, wait a minute, you know. Um, but I'm very interested in um, the last solo show I put up was called $1,800. 
And it was about me finding $1,800 in cash uh, a couple years ago when I was very sick with Crohn's disease, which is oh. a big theme in a lot of the stories I tell as okay. an adult. Uh-huh. Um, and it's about the crazy amount of time between the finding of the money and the choice of what to do with the money that I experienced. And it really was one of those like these like magical two-month periods in my life where I couldn't believe all these stories were happening. It felt um, something, my life felt very much out of my hands, controlled, steered in a way that I've never experienced that before. Uh, So I did a solo show about that, and I think what I'd like to do next is to perform that a few more times in front of people and then adapt it. And do you have first readers? Do you have folks that you share words with on a regular basis, and who are they? Yeah, um, so there's an author named Sarah Barron who uh, has written two memoirs. Um, her last one was called The Harmon Asking, and she she was a moth host. I met her as a moth host, and then she decided to uh, marry her husband and move to London, and I took over her job oh, as a wow. moth host. Okay. And in that process, she became my first writing mentor oh, um, and was instrumental. And then um, Diana Speckler, who's actually a Harper Perennial author, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've worked with her a lot on a few pieces, and she's been great. And then when I worked with Alex Glass, he had an assistant named Michael Ferrante, who literally was like, I was given the gift of an editor before an editor. He that's, was, yeah, that's lovely. And he was also great. Terrific. Yeah. Now I want to ask you a few questions. Writer as reader. Mm-hmm. What was the last book you had a conversation about, and what did you, what, what did you talk about? The last time I read a book that I was very yeah, excited they, well, about? Yeah, that they, I, just anything that you talked about with a friend, or you know, the, the last time you said, oh, I, I have to talk about this book. Um, and I didn't expect this to happen. I started Wonder, oh, yeah. the YA book, yeah. and that um, that really engaged me in a way. I mean, that's outside of my wheelhouse in terms of things I typically like. You know, um, I read a few Eisenberg's book, which I really enjoyed. Sarah Barron's last two. I mean, I, I like a lot of humorous memoir, um, and Wonder was not something I expected to love, but there was so much interesting perception shift mm-hmm. and character shift. I mm-hmm. thought it was. I thought it was. I don't know. It was exciting. I read it in two days, and yeah. I don't. And what what made you pick it up? I'm always curious about that when when folks find a find a, a YA like that. Oh, oh! I think uh, my agent gave it to me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was sitting there, and I was like, eh. And I was like, eh. No, and that book got a you know it got a ton of um, publicity. It got a ton of publicity, and one of the things that really fascinated me about it, I think, because my interests come from such a place of nonfiction memoir. Right. I I heard an interview, read an interview with the author before I read the book where she talked about the scene in the book, which for her was the real experience that Uh. informed the whole book. And then that really fascinated me. And when I got to that scene in the book, that was so interesting to me. I I don't want to ruin it. how she handled it? Yeah, Yeah, and the fact that she was the other. She she took an experience in which she was the sort of passerby and then made, and then from that sort of drew this other long narrative out. But, um... Uh, I love that. And then um, I'm trying to think of what else I've... Again, there's been so much non-reading, yeah. non... Non-time. You don't have the time, it's, yeah. It's crazy. I have a, a storytelling student named Drew Prohaska who is really funny. He's like just one of moth, and he's super talented, and he uh, he's written... He wrote a, a memoir that he self-published, like just a hundred of them, just to have, called, I think, Where We Were When We Were Werewolves. And... I have laughed so loud, like on the train, people ask me, like, who is that? And I'm like, oh, you can't get it. That's so funny. It's my, yeah, so I'm like really pushing him right now. Now, I also ask everybody, if you were to recommend a book to a 13-year-old boy, 
what would be what would your first thought be? Well, why why that question and that demographic? Because you know why? Because that's one of your toughest customers, right? Wow. So you uh, you almost have to assume yeah. that they're reluctant readers. I mean, they might not be because they might be part of the five percent. Yeah. But so you kind of, everybody has a different perspective on on what they would recommend to encourage somebody to catch the bug, you know, to continue the bug. Well, you know, not to go back to wonder, but um, I have uh, triplets. I have nieces and nephews that are triplets, and um, two of them are boys, and one of them read the book. They're they're just now twelve, I think, and he was he was addicted. He couldn't he, loved it. he couldn't oh, stop talking great. about it. And you know, he's not like a super athletic jockey boy, but he's not. Um, He's not a delicate flower either, you know. He for me, he's like a very middle of the road, like twelve year old right. kid. Oh, and that's he, good to hear. And and he he really really connected to that book. He loved that story, you know. I mean, there's I have old favorites of mine, you know. Like I, I can read uh, Brave New World again and again and again. For me, I read it when I was fifteen. Yeah, that, I remember in in the book, yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. At some point, 16. you talk about that. You say I just yeah. sat there and read it. And I, and and and, and I, I I I was addicted to that. I mean, for me, it. It was just science fiction enough that it interested that part of my brain, but thoughtful in a way that I, I didn't quite get it, and right. that made me read it again. Yeah, intrigued. Yeah. That because I felt like I understood the setting. You know, I had read other science fiction futuristic books, but there was something so sort of complex and beautiful about the way the story was being told in terms of the, the characters. I, I, I don't know. I would give I would give any 13, 14, 15 year old kid that book. Yeah, that's a good one. I yeah. agree. All right, now if you had to be, if you were to be banished to a mm. desert island. Oh, God, this question. I know, too bad, I'm asking. Mm. Everybody complains, I don't care. You get three. Three books? Three books. Oh, my gosh. Um, you are an awful person. I know, I, t- I, I make people weep with that one. I would take um, David Sedaris naked. Oh, good one. Um, I love everything you, I love everything you did before. I love everything after. But naked for me as a through line as a as a single story about his connection with his mother is just I laugh so hard and in the end I Yeah, it's it, devastating. Talk about yeah. salty sweet like right, hug him exactly. and hug him and hit him. I just oh um that would be one. I can read that again and again. Um oh my god, this is so hard. I haven't read it in a long time, but I read it a few times and I always really liked Sula mm-hmm. by Toni Morrison. Sure, that's a good one too. There's some scenes in that that are they take me to another place. Like, I hear the score. I see the pictures. It's it's really cinematic for me. Oh, my gosh. I have to pick one more. And I know that I'm going to hear this later and be like, why didn't I name the three books? Everybody has it. This is just off the top of your head thing. I really like I really like Dry by Augustine Burroughs. Those are three very good picks, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, really... You know, I'm, I'm a fan of Brady Sinellis, and I know it's a very divisive book. I really like American Psycho. I know a lot of people that absolutely hate it, but right. I feel like I've read it a few times, gotten the joke, and then gone back, and, oh my, okay. Okay, it just came to you. I love uh, Chuck Palahniuk, Invisible Monsters. Invisible Monsters, for sure, is right. one of my three. There you go. I gave you four, but whatever. That's fine. That's yeah. very good. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Or do we have to stop? We have to stop now, but I'll have you back <laughs> anytime. And I'm I'm so excited for the publication, and I wish you the very best. I'm gonna Thank I'm you so gonna much. I'm gonna press it on a lot of people. Oh, great. I really enjoyed it. Thank great. you very much. Thank you so much for having me. 
Hi, I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and with me today is Catherine Cleary Walters, the real life inspiration for the character Nora Jansen in Piper Kerman's memoir and Alex Voss in the Netflix show Orange is the New Black. So basically, in one medium, you were one name, and then in another medium, she changed it again. Piper spent 13 months in a Danbury, Connecticut, minimum security prison beginning in 2004, and the experience that formed the basis for Orange is the New Black. Walters was charged with conspiracy to import heroin and served almost six years in a Dublin, California prison before being paroled in 2008. Walter caught the writing bug early and began writing poetry before moving on to fiction and screenplays, writing extensively during her prison sentence. Out of Orange, publishing May 5th by Harper One, is Cleary's first memoir and her first published work. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Did I get all that right? You got all of it right. Okay, good. <laughs> it's kind of confusing the way they changed the character name, but, but basically we all are familiar with this character that is the girlfriend, that is sort of at least in the series, sort of the bad guy in terms of, you know, entrapping this young woman and, and leading her to a life of crime. Yes, I'm the sophisticated, glamorous, older seductress. So you've written a full account of what really happened. And as far as I can understand, it seems like you and Piper don't disagree too much, too, too much about what happened in real life. There are some things that have been dramatized that, that obviously are not quite true. But what is it that you hope to do, and, to, and what is it, how is it that you were hoping to set the record straight by writing this book? Well, the record that I'm setting straight primarily has to do with the series and less to do with Piper's memoir. And while I do love Orange is the New Black as a form of entertainment, it's not a great form of, it's not a great place to go for a, a look at what prison is like for women in America. It portrays the setting very well, and it gives you a good view of, you know, what people look like in prison, the clothes that they wear, and it gives you a peek at some of the things that they're going through, but it misses the mark, and probably intentionally so, because it is, after all, entertainment. But prison is a very, um, well, the experience is degrading, it's dehumanizing, it's not fun, it's not a free-for-all bed and breakfast for lesbians having sex in the shower that you see on Netflix on the series. And the... The background stories that they tell you, I think, are really done well. They're very representative of most people in prison, or a lot of people in prison, that are there because it's almost inevitable that they mm. end up there or in some such circumstance, and almost inevitable that they return. And if I were setting the record straight with the memoir and the series, it would be that I am not solely responsible for Piper's incarceration. I did I did testify against one of my defendants, and I did testify 
in a more general sense to a grand jury, and Piper's indictment did come after that grand jury testimony, but it was not solely based on my testimony that she was included in this conspiracy. All uh, but one of 14 co-defendants did exactly what I did. We all pled guilty. And part of doing a plea is you have to enter a statement of fact, not fantasy, a fact. And it has to be complete and it has to be truthful or your plea agreement is null and void. Um, I think most people in the federal system actually are in the federal system by way of a plea agreement because going to trial even when you're not guilty is uh, not a winning bet. Yeah, now, there's in just my too case, much risk involved, and so the advice is, you know, don't take that risk. The advice is generally don't yeah. take that risk because yeah. the time that you're given is going to be substantially higher. The statistics that I've was given at the time were they get, have a 98% conviction rate, wow. and you you have to imagine. I mean, when I heard that, I'm like, well, 98% conviction rate, and shoot, I'm guilty. <laughs> Uh, Not much hope in that. Right. Um, And I think that everyone makes the same ultimate decision is to do a plea agreement. Yeah. And one thing that's important is when I was first arrested, my my spilling of the beans was not based on getting a plea, a better deal, a better shorter time or anything like that because it clearly did not work out that way. it was because I was scared. I was frightened that because we were all being arrested at the same time, or so I believed, that to me seemed like it was going to freak the Nigerian drug lord oh, totally right. out. And right. if I had thought he was a dangerous person before, I was convinced that we were. It was we had minutes to live. Wow. So. You know, the way that they portray that in the series as if I were divisive and manipulative, and that's not the case. Yeah. If anything, I was naive. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And it also makes sense sort of how they would cheat that. Right. You know, how they would make it something, you know, more sensational in an effort to simplify it and and move the plot along and maintain, you know, the innocence of this protagonist that they that we all have right. to follow for however many seasons, right? See, that's but, entertainment, and I and I again, I can separate fiction from reality. The problem is is that a lot of fans of the show haven't necessarily read Piper's memoir, of course, yeah, and they get curious. You know, it didn't take hours after I finished watching the entire series in one sitting I already had you know, my mugshot was up online oh my goodness yeah so you know whereas this is a fictional character I want to make sure that people are able to distinguish who I am versus Alex Voss so I'm curious why the instinct was I think I know because you talk about it in the book, your early aspirations to write. In fact, I think it's after one of your first trips, you you have the money and you think, oh, okay, now I have a little bit of money and I can sit down and I can write the novel that I really want to write. So I, I believe that that goes far back. But it might have been easier 
to to give an interview or to do something other than the very difficult task of sitting down and writing a memoir. So tell us why you wanted to do it that way. When I was in prison, I wrote three novels, and they were fiction. They skirt around my own experiences, and when I did that, it was incredibly cathartic, but it was fiction. When I considered stepping out of, from behind the curtain or whatever, however you want to put this, um, and getting my story out there, I wanted to make sure that the right story got out there, that the truth got out there. And the reality of my story, my experience, is so complex, and it took 20 years to unfold, that I didn't know that I could do it justice in sound bites. Yeah. And it's not that I'm doing my own story justice. My life is a cautionary tale to not any particular group, literally anybody who is making tiny missteps. Yeah, because it sort of builds, right? It's just, oh, I'll do this, and then I'll do that. And then by the by the time you know it, you're, you're in. You're gone. You're so in over your head, right? And, and no, there was nothing in, you know, there wasn't any one point where I sat there and said, I'm going to become this. Of course, yeah. And... When you find yourself in a place like I was had broken up with someone and was floundering, it seems to me that that's a very dangerous period in somebody's life. And if I can reach somebody, somebodies that are in that place and just shake them, say, wake up and be very careful. Be careful what you decide to do. Watch your steps very carefully. Maybe I can help somebody avoid a 20-year saga that I've gone through. Yeah. And getting it, entangling with the federal government, don't do it. <laughs> oh, my God, don't do it. And why did you end up in California? I was extradited to California. Okay. So was that, like, better or worse than being in the Midwest, do you know? Um, it was both. It was better for me not to be near family and friends. Why is that? Because visits punctuate your time. I see. I see. And no visits lets you slip completely into another world that just doesn't exist. And my experience of that was that it made time go faster. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I envied the women who had visits every weekend. So you're you're now serving time, and you're you tell us about your experience writing and 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 the efforts that you made there, and the the encouragement that you got or didn't get, and how how this sort of led to this larger effort. Well, I was not allowed to talk to any of my co-defendants after the series came out, and that was really weird. Um, and how could they do? How could they ask you that at that point? Because now you've served and you're out, right? Well, I was still on five years of supervised oh, right, release. Right, right, right. And okay. so they still had a litany of rules and regulations I right. that I had to abide by. And one of those rules and regulations is that you have no contact with other felons and certainly no co-defendants. They made the exception with my sister because she's my sister. But 
even when the Netflix series came out, I, that exception was not extended to Piper. And I was not supposed to... There were legal things that were underway that made it... It would have been inappropriate to talk to the media. So when my supervised release period was coming to an end, I had to decide what to do. Do I want to, you know, I had a lot of reporters, um, radio stations and stuff reaching out and trying to get me to interview with them. And the concept of do I want to be a soundbite or do I want to, like, take advantage of this and tell my story and tell it right. So... I had never written nonfiction, and when I started writing it, it was so incredibly cathartic and therapeutic to actually pull all this out, look at it, dissect it, yeah, and try to make sense of it. So who helped you in that regard? Who were some of your early readers? Early readers of the memoir? Yeah, of the manuscript. <laughs> yeah. My mother. That was fun because she could read the same page ten times. <laughs> And each time it was new. So I get all kinds of critique from her and my sister and my best friends at home. Okay. I tortured them all with yeah. first reads. Yeah. Okay. I had a couple of friends from Dublin that had been my editors in prison. <laughs> yeah. And I sent some work to them to look at. Yeah, you knew them. You trusted them, yeah. Because it was a weird transition going from fiction to nonfiction. Sure. A very uncomfortable one. It's like when you're sitting there writing about your deepest, darkest secrets, things that you don't necessarily like to share with yourself even. Huge, yeah. And you think, oh, my God, this, everybody's going to read this. Yeah. You know, my boss. Right. It's weird. So now tell us, you have a very interesting pursuit right now. Tell us what you're studying. I'm studying information technology, um, security, and assurance. And where are you doing that? At Capella University. And Um, what led you to this? Well, when I was, right before I was extradited, I had started a company, 1212, and was a very early innovator for web stuff. Yeah. And created a online classroom for distance learning for K through 12 kids who worked on MIDI instruments. Oh. And I discovered something that I loved. I have no idea where this came from, but I love codes, coding. Oh, yep. I love weird stuff. So I was extradited right in the middle of a brand new company that was just about to take off. In a big way, too. We had gotten the um, project for the Goals 2000 Act, which is what Al Gore was doing, bringing computers into every classroom. And we were one of the first of the pilot projects that came out of each state to actually use Netscape and the Internet as opposed to GovNet and the cable that IBM was providing for free in hopes of I guess they hoped to capture a a new market. Great idea. And I come along with my stupid stuff that's totally free. Nobody has to pay any kind of, like, AOL subscriptions or CompuServe or 
or beholden to any big corporation at the end of the day. It's on Netscape. You put it on a server somewhere and it works. So we were just about to probably do some big things. And then I was arrested at the bank. And when I got to San Francisco, I held on to some fantasy that this was just going to be cleared up. And I was just going to go back to Vermont and pick up where I left off. So I was working very hard to make sure things didn't fall apart while I was away. So I snuck into the Hayes Law School and used their computers to telnet to the systems back east and continued to work while I was in the halfway house. While in the halfway house, going to the library, working on the computers there, I met a few people that actually connected me with some of the technology folks and it was all just so fancy and they you know they had the swank office spaces and kegs of beer and pool tables and unicycles and whatnot you know the whole three ring circus the dot-com days that's what I ended up doing for the six almost seven years of pre-trial is working in technology in particular software testing I fell in love with that and I also made really good money much better money than I ever made smuggling drugs. Isn't that something? When I went to prison, I my intention again was, oh, I'll come back and pick up where I left off in San Francisco. And, of course, that didn't happen because I had to go home to take care of Mom. And here I am stuck in Cincinnati, not exactly Silicon Valley, very conservative city, trying to get a job with a felony conviction. And... One of the ways that I compensated for having that ugly mark on my record was to go back to school, get the degrees that I never completed. Yeah. And I just got carried away and got yeah. more degrees. You than just I, went all the way up to right, PhD. Right. All right. So I want to ask you, I always ask our authors about their perspective as a reader. So what was the last um, conversation you had about a book and what did you talk about? The last conversation I had about a book was um, Soltsnaya. book is essentially about a group of engineers in Russia in, I believe, Labyanka prison. And they're being perpetually sentenced to, oh, 10 years at a time. And the sentences that they're given are... They're basically made-up crimes just to keep these engineers incarcerated and working for the Russian government. The prisoners didn't have any heat, didn't have any food. They had to have families bring boxes of food in. And I was thinking that there's some similarities between what these Russians were talking about X number of years ago and what's happening in my life, where 10-year sentences are being given out like candy as if 10 years doesn't mean anything. Right. Your entire body is regenerated in seven. Every cell in your body is regenerated in seven years. So 10 years is like, it's a lifetime. And, yeah, that was a pretty dark, dismal book to read. Now, the other question I ask is if you were to think about a 12-year-old boy who we often sort of see as one of the reluctant readers, so if you had to recommend a book to him, what book would you recommend? I would recommend anything by Wally Lamb. Oh. I love his um, his protagonist, Dolores, I think is her name, the fat girl. Yeah. I think that that's a great read for 
a 12-year-old boy to grow up being a little more sensitive yeah. to the women around them and their insecurities. Well, that's an interesting perspective, yeah. All right, my final question. It's a little bit cliche, but I ask it anyway. Were you to be banished to a desert island and you could only take three books, what would you take? Three books to a desert island. I would take, hmm, the Bible. Can I take a series of books? I'll let you take a series of books. All right, Encyclopedia Britannica. Good one. The newest version because I've already read the other ones. Oh, I see. Um, seriously, I did. I read <laughs> the encyclopedias because that was that the, was what was we had in prison. You? Yeah, and they're entertaining as hell. And something by Albert Camus, hmm. The Stranger. Okay. I could read that a million times and get a different story out of it every time I read it. Okay, great. Well, thank you so very much for your time. This was really very interesting, and best of luck with the book. It's a, it's a great read. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.